All right, everybody, we are back. You are here once again with the Great Dive Podcast. You're here with me, your good buddy, old Jamesy. Who's much older this week. Who's uh, much older this week thanks. after uh, another wonderful birthday. Shout out to everybody. Uh, I spent all day long answering Facebook birthday messages uh, Monday. And you hate that. You love that. Don't, I do. Don't I fool do. the people. Makes me feel happy. It does. You know what? You know what? Actually, I like better than a happy birthday uh, Facebook message on my birthday. I actually like a day and or two days later a belated birthday because those are the people that are like, you know what? I can't believe I missed his birthday. I have to get out there and tell him happy birthday. Well, I think really you like a birthday weekend. You like your birthday to be continued for a couple days. Like all my children get out like a month-long birthday. Birth, uh, March is my birthday month. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so it's Pisces season for you. Yes. We're sensitive. Yes, I know. I, I'm, I'm a cancer, and I've been told I'm sensitive. I don't get told, oh, you're a sensitive man. I get told... You're overly sensitive. <laughs> then I cry on my way home. You're, we're here with Beyond the Pale Brando and Slobwinder Jamesy. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, we are, we are still talking about good old Georgie. That's George Irvine, too, to those who don't know. So where we last uh, left off... Um, was talking about that article from Deep Tech Issue 8 where they did a, a Q&A with old George Irvine talking about his philosophy, his thinking, his controversy. Uh, two episodes ago, we were talking about the the old original Do It Right or Don't Do It article that he had wrote for, um, I believe, also for Deep Tech. And... The controversy was really running rampant at this time. This is like late 90s now, right? This is like late 97, mid 97. And we come to the darkest days of really of the George story is is all fun and games to get out there and just call everybody a fat bovine pig, pot smoking, weenie faced stroke, son of a bitch, stroke, stroke. Stroke ignoramus, dumb fuck, until one of uh, everybody's friends in the in the industry, like outside of your circle of friends, you know, one of the most loved guys out there dies tragically, and uh, you proceed to go on a rant of calling him a dumb fuck who deserved it, you know, so we, we come to that terrible story, and of course I'm talking about the story of Rob Palmer who at the time was like one of the leading cave explorers who was heavily exploring the the Bahama the, the Bahamian deep caves right he was a a British cave explorer deep technical diver technical instructor but again it was you know it was those old early days of technical where everybody other than George's circle was doing the hey Whatever works for you method. <laughs> yes, there was DIR and then there was everyone else. 
And at a time where the everybody else in the world was probably looking for one sentence of sympathy from George, he immediately came out reinforcing what he had been saying all along. And it went over kind of like how you would expect. <laughs> Like a lead balloon. Well, he didn't hold any punch. He didn't pull any punches. I, and I guess if you're gonna give him credit for anything, I guess you can give him credit. Like he stuck to he stuck to his guns. To tell you that he much, he did stick to his guns, and uh, I think he still sticks to his guns. You know. You know that's an interesting question, yeah. Brando. Like I, I, I guess to to sit down with him, you know. And have a chat one day. Like, do you think there's any remorse, you know, 25 years later of how we dealt with the Rob Palmer situation? Or do you think he is still just would still stick to his guns? I personally, uh, I, I know, know, (laughs) unfortunately, I know where you're going. I mean, I think he he would still stick to his guns. I don't. I don't believe he is uh, a big fan of changing the language around of the message to um, not offend people, especially when the message is, in his mind, is so uh, vitally important to the the community of cave diving, diving period, and just to people themselves because it's life or death. Is what he is in his mind. I, I'm sure. I mean, and to a certain degree, he's he's correct. You know how you do this, how you approach this activity, can determine whether you uh, you survive or don't survive given certain circumstances. Yeah, right. I mean, he he was diving. I mean, I mean, if if you look back at what we say, and obviously, I mean, I wasn't there. I don't know for sure, but. It looks to me like he was diving heavy steel independent doubles, a steel bottle slung along the way in a wetsuit in warm water in Egypt. You know, so was, it was a there was a, on, on air, air going deep into the three hundred foot deep, range. like yeah. nearly three plus, like pushing four hundred feet is when he was they last. So the O two alone is going to tox you out. The O2 alone, the oxygen. Not, not even we're not even talking narcosis. We're talking oxygen toxicity is going to get you. Not to mention the narcosis is going to settle in as well. So it's a double whammy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you that's the big one that everybody you know when you you know research this a little bit, you know that's what you constantly keep seeing as he died of nitrogen narcosis, no. but. It's way more than nitrogen narcosis right. going on when you're that deep and on yeah, it. I can't believe you can just make a call that nitrogen narcosis is a cause of death. Nitrogen, nitrogen narcosis would be a contributing factor, but not a cause. I mean, all it affects your thinking. It doesn't kill you, though. It's your actions that kill you or your lack of actions that kill you. And we can only, at this point, speculate, like, what could have happened to him? I mean, it could have been a, a, a 
bunch of different things that was going on to cause him to never be able to get buoyancy and just keep falling and falling well, and yeah. falling and falling and, and never stop. And did he do it on purpose because he wanted to go? Did he do it because he was passed out, blacked out from, you know, passing out from working too hard trying to get back up because his inflator wasn't hooked? I mean, who knows? Well, what exactly. Happened, right? It's easy to go through, you know, I don't want to say an infinite amount of scenarios, but it's an easy one to, to see wetsuit, steel tanks, independent twins, air, almost a bottomless ocean underneath you. And you jump in, and whether your inflator isn't hooked all the way in, whether your inf- your wing has a hole in it somewhere, well, whatever. I mean, there are ways to mitigate those circumstances as well. But if you jump in and your inflator on your wing is not hooked in and you start going down thinking, okay, I'm cool, and I'll I'll arrest my descent as I get deeper, and you go to hit the hit your inflator and nothing happens. Well, now you're frantic, but you're sinking like a rock with a, a thin wetsuit and uh, steel tanks all over you. You're sinking like a rock. There's you'd be working your butt off just to to try to slow that down, much less slow it down and try to get your inflator, you know, hose connected to the uh to your bc inflator you know and then you could try orally but even then it's you're you're working (laughs) and right right i mean you're working that's the thing too is when once that co2 starts getting added to the mix it's bad news i mean look look out look out i mean because that's gonna affect you even worse. I mean, it, it's the start of that vicious cycle, right? Isn't it, James, where the CO2 builds up, which gives you that urge to breathe more. And you, so you breathe, you're breathing faster, but less efficient. You're getting rid of less CO2. And the gas is air. And the deeper you go, the denser it gets. It becomes like syrup in your lungs. You're working and creating even more CO2 by the work of breathing. Uh, such a dense gas. So there's a bunch of things going on there that, I mean, we can all sit and speculate. It's not a, it's not a far reach though to imagine some of the things that could have been going on as he basically, you know, jumped, jumped overboard and went, he descended by himself as his other diving buddies watched him and he was, uh, he was gone. Yeah, from what was the, the the planned dive compared to where they last saw him, realizing that there's no way to get to him. I mean, they last saw him. They say in 120 meters of water, still dropping. Right. So, I mean, all you all you can do there is kind of speculate what what is going on, what is the deal. Um, and we like we look at now, you know, one of the major tenets that that we teach is that concept of a balanced rig for a, a situation like what you just described of if you were to have a complete failure of buoyancy you never want to be weighted so heavy that you couldn't still swim up right it's you know the whole concept of the balanced rig but in the old days it, it was really normal just to keep throwing on steel bottles steel bottles was the cool thing 
the the little nerdy guys, you know, you know, diving the little shallow reef in Grand Cayman. They use those aluminum right. aluminums. Well, us tough tech divers, we dive these big steel bottles. Well, I think uh, this was a part of the wake up call to the general community that you have to make smart choices in your equipment you choose, and there has to be reasons for using the different equipment. I mean, throwing steels on with neoprene overweights you like crazy, and as you go deeper, the overweighting factor goes up exponentially. And if you do have some kind of mishap with your buoyancy control device, your wing or whatever you're using, you could be in trouble. Uh, that's it's never going to happen, happen, is it? That's <laughs> no, never going to happen. Yeah. I don't. It's happened to me on more than one occasion where my wing failed to inflate when I needed it to inflate. The other big part of George's attack and just attacks in general with, with everybody that he was fighting with on the internet was the deep air. He was not a proponent of deep air. <laughs> For a lot of the reasons, like we were talking about just a minute ago, right? The, yes. the nitrogen narcosis, number one, but the the, the CO two narcosis, density. the density of the gas, the difficulty of breathing, the 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 it's harder to decompress. Like, there's a, a ton, there's a litany of reasons. Yeah, but back in that day, they believed helium was more difficult to decompress from. That was the more dangerous gas. That was a devil's gas, right? But as we've continued to move forward of diving, we learn helium is so much nicer on your, your cellular metabolism, if you want to call it that. And Rob was, he was a proponent of Trimix himself. Except for for this day <laughs> and that's the crazy part you know but you know you still see especially i would say you know the diving community sees this even more so i think a lot of ways now even though we've learned so much more but with the price of helium getting so expensive lately you're seeing a bit of a rebirth out there of people accepting deep air right in lieu of not spending the money on a on a mix that they should be diving for a depth I'll, I'll just take the air because it, it's cheaper, it's easier. Yeah. You're, so you're seeing that, the deep air coming back. You're all, you are also seeing, uh, I don't want to call it a resurgent, a surgence, because this is the first surgence, really, of rebreathers. So people are buying rebreathers to offset that helium, which is, uh, I don't know how you feel about it, James. I don't know if we've really talked too much about it. We've talked about breathers, but the idea of going into a rebreather right out of the gate or going into a rebreather in the first year of diving, is that moving too fast? Should you master open circuit first and, and then move on? It's a, I guess well, it's I a think subject for debate, right? I think it certainly is. I, I think a lot of the rebreather manufacturers out there and the rebreather <laughs> the sales reps are going to tell you yeah. that rebreathers are the greatest thing to ever happen. I think a lot of them are going to say that rebreathers are going to completely replace open circuit one They're day. Probably right. I, I, and I would say you you might be right, but I don't know that. I mean, definitely right now it, it can't completely relate. You know, replace open circuit because open circuit is still the bailout I, I, until. Until the rebreather is always the bailout every time, and the rebreather on the rebreather on the rebreather thinking, I, I think you have to master open circuit at some point because when all goes wrong and you totally 
have to bail out on everything, you still have to be an open circuit diver. Yes. I don't know enough about the uh, various bailout procedures and whatnot to, to comment intelligently on it, so I'll shut my mouth. But I do know that uh, a major agency was pushing breathers for brand new divers, the same agency that was going to boot you if you breathed nitrox as an instructor. They were going to boot you and, and take away your, your birthday, I guess. That same agency, once they realized... There's money to be had in them thar hills. There's gold in them thar hills of nitrox and mixed gas and tech diving and rebreathers. And then they went to the other side of the spectrum and said, rebreathers for brand new divers. Why not? Whoa, we can't produce. When I say we, that agency can barely produce a competent open circuit diver. And they want to throw them in breathers? Give me a break. Well, and I think this is... um... I mean, these are a lot of the issues that I think Georgia's having at yes. the time, right? That's the only reason I bring it up is because I know this kind of stuff is going on in his mind as he watched the community and the industry be completely oblivious or ignoring their responsibility. Because we're at a time where the majority, and when I say the majority, I mean, we're talking like 99% yes. of the industry is looking at equipment is the savior yeah right equipment will save the day equipment solves everything you just haven't bought the right piece yet there's still another piece for you and and we're going to keep designing the equipment to fix all the ailments that we could have underwater and every problem that you could have underwater we're gonna we've got something else we can sell you to take care of that and there's a very small, you know, portion of the community that's saying, wait, 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 wait. Isn't it really the training? Isn't it really the diver? Not not the uh, the lack of equipment. There's tons of equipment. Yeah, that that was the birth of the uh, the old adage of buying a, equipment to solve a skill problem or using equipment to solve a, a skill problem, which is pretty especially back then, pretty rampant, that philosophy, if you want to call it, that um, methodology of diving. Use the equipment. Just if you're bad on gas, buy bigger bottles. Instead of, why am I bad on gas? What's wrong with my technique? How come I'm working so hard? Yes, if you if you need to or want to go to diving doubles because you need more air, the last thing you need is a set of doubles. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because most of the time, if not all of the time, the uh, the gas usage thing is, is completely a technique problem. A, a buoyancy control, trim, and uh, propulsion technique. If you want a set of doubles because you know that you don't have enough gas with you, to do the dive that you want to do if the you know proverbial shit hits the fan so you need to bring additional gas now you're kind of on the track of going okay doubles are making sense right this is the single tank right. isn't really the right tool for the job anymore but if it's because you're the first guy out of gas you, you want bigger tanks and and bigger bottles and go to doubles and triples and quads because you go through air so fast the last thing you need 
is to be diving doubles. You need to fix your technique. True. And it can't hurt. How could it hurt? And I think that was, you know, one of George's issues with the mainstream community and even the cave diving community is there's a lot of, well, self-appointed gurus cave diving and uh, just happened to have lived just things like that. that I think he looked around and knew he was doing he was doing the big boy dives and they he was doing it with a team. They had one of the best safety records to have ever graced the cave diving community as far as doing the big dives that nobody else was doing and everybody coming home at the end of the day. And that was his, probably his, you know, badge of honor right there. And that's what he based a lot of this on. Not to mention that the whole, if you want to call it a system, the whole system was was not developed by, by one person or one dive or a couple dives or just these guys in the cave diving community it was developed over time by very intelligent people that did a whole lot of you know trial and error and and approaching problems from various angles to try to get to the root of issues yeah and george's job he was of that group of people he was the the vocal spokesman for it at the time (laughs) so his job was to talk about it but, you know, his personality is, uh, you know, wasn't really thought it was going to be what it was, I guess, at the time. No, he was more like a, a WWE guy, you know, and uh, <laughs> wasn't he? <laughs> right, yeah. I mean. Uh, I'm here to tell you, brother. <laughs> you, you do a better one. But <laughs> if you come stomping in my cave. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's uh, that, that was him. He, he was a bit of a character. So, Brando, I've got a story here, you know, um, from John Banton, who was a close friend of Rob's. You know, if you, if you Google the, you know, Rob Palmer and the, this tragic, you know, fatality, uh, you'll come across it. This is from the Newry Morn Subaqua Club Members of the B-Sacks um, is where I found this. And uh, this kind of just takes a look at, like, Rob's, you know, death, you know, afterwards uh, by a guy who uh, used to die with him. He says, cave divers used to tell a joke about some of their number who died and went to heaven. St. Peter met them at the pearly gates and asked what they wanted to find in their perfect heaven. A wonderful cave system that no one had been in before, they replied. Cave diver, that's mental. That's mental. That's mental right there. Come on. Like, you know it. I mean, you're a cave diver. What do you want when you die? I want the perfect, pristine cave that nobody's ever seen. I'm a cave diver, but I'm a man first. There are are other things I could think of. But even that would get boring. I mean, you got to think bigger than that. But go ahead. I'm sorry. Soon, they were swimming through a magnificent cave, past the pearly gates. And suddenly, a diver on a big black Aquazep scooter roared up from behind them, hooked onto their line, and shot off ahead into the system. The cave divers went back to St. Peter to complain that they were not the first into the cave, 
Who was that guy with the big black aqua zep, they replied. Was it God? No, replied St. Peter. That's Rob Palmer. He only thinks he's God. Ha, ha, ha. you could substitute 50 cave divers. <laughs> I think you could substitute most. <laughs> probably most into that, into that little joke. But uh, John Banton says, not hilarious, but it says something about Rob, that he used to repeat that story with pride. As one of the best-known divers in the world, cave diving was only part of it. He understood that he was bound to attract envy in some quarters. Lesser divers were quick to criticize. He always appeared to relish it. If Rob was unjustly regarded as arrogant by some, he would certainly take himself a bit seriously at times. On one liveaboard trip, for instance, we all conspired to call him Rod. A week passed before he snapped and yelled at us. My name is Rob. From then on, we used to call him Rod Plummer. <laughs> I mean, that's what that's the the downside of being too serious with yourself. Exactly. I mean, I know in the circles where I yeah. grew up. Well, uh, well you schmucks the, would do that shit to me in a split second if I let you. <laughs> I mean, as soon as you make one mistake and somebody calls you out uh-huh. on it, if you try to defend yourself, oh, you'll never live it down the rest of your life. That is the worst thing you could do, to give it any credibility. That, that somebody, somebody calls you a nickname, you better pretend like you didn't even hear it. Cherish it. You should you Or should just pretend it. you, oh, I love that. I love that That's name. That's awesome. Because right? yeah. as soon as you start saying, don't call me that. My name's Rob. Right, Speed Nuts? <laughs> right, Speed Nuts? And Speed Nuts, to his credit. He seems to be embracing that that new nickname, and hopefully he'll he'll work it out, <laughs> work himself out of speed nuts. John says he became resigned to good natured ribbing from his friends. Rob wrote books and articles about organizing expeditions. Those who went on his expeditions knew that as an expedition organizer, he was totally disorganized. He was, however, an exemplary diver. He was knowledgeable, disciplined, avoided risks, and was always cool under pressure. This guy sounds like me. Sounds like a lot of us here. <laughs> uh, mostly meaning that I'm totally disorganized. Yes, just so ask, I was going to say. Just ask my wife. I have that occasionally, yes. An excellent teacher. He never missed a chance to pass on his knowledge. I believe that to dive with him was to dive in as much safety as was possible. If he had a fault, I thought, it was that he could be a little bit earnest. <laughs> what's, your, what's your only fault? I'm too earnest. I'm too, I work too hard, and I'm too good at what I do. Listen, I do have a, I do have a fault. My fault is that I'm too good at what I do. <laughs> Sometimes I can be too good at what I do. Yeah, beware of that trap question when you, uh, you go on your interview. What's your biggest fault, Jamesy? What's your biggest fault? Well, uh, this is a hard one because it really hits me right in the feels because I've been working on it. I've been trying to fix this, but 
I'm too good at everything I do. I work too hard, and I take things to the nth degree of, of impeccability, and that's why I need to work on that. Some people find it offensive. It's been said I'm too handsome. <laughs> my, uh, my biggest fault, yeah, I'll tell you my biggest fault. My hair is always perfect. <laughs> it, it upsets a lot of people that, that have lesser hair, if you will. <laughs> it's the chiseled jawline and wedge-shaped <laughs> chest. The form-fitting T-shirts. I, it's a curse, really. It, 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 it curses me. John says, I dive with Rob often in latter years. We shared accommodation in hotels and on boats. I found him good company and a foil for my eccentric sense of humor. In May 1997, we were due to spend two weeks together in the Red Sea. Rob was on good form. His luggage had been lost between his home in the Bahamas and London, where we met up. But when I suggested that this was a problem that needed sorting out, he replied, John, you're confusing me with someone who gives a damn. Nothing ever seemed to phase him. Until he died. Well, yeah, because this, this is what it's going to lead up to, right? So, I mean, I, I guess, you know, today, in hindsight, it's easy to look at this as being like, a, whoa, this is a red flag zinger. You know, and, and which is why one of the other things that really grew, like, during those days, those early days of what you and I teach today is, you know, the the compounding little problems yeah. at some point need to be addressed, right? Yeah, you go underwater and one of your regulator valve, you know, the, the regulator fails, the valve to the regulator fails, and you, you lose half of your breathable gas. That's a major problem. You're going to abort the dive. But a lot of people forget to think about the culmination of, Little things building up on the dive. And this is a little thing that needs to be addressed of I'm starting the dive with already a little bit of a handicap. I don't have any of my stuff. I'm using a, a collection of just stuff that was given to me that I grabbed on the boat. Right. You need to be in a little bit of a better, sharper mindset. You can't go with the same mindset as if everything is all happy and hunky-dory. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean... The- Going back to his original statement, like he doesn't give a damn, though, is maybe he doesn't mean that. Because you have to, to have gotten that that far into the diving community, you had to have been able to pick up on the little problems and gave a damn enough to fix them. You couldn't have made it that far. Sure. So could it have been just a macho-ness of, yes, you think? Yes, that's exactly what I would go with, is it is... Uh, Part of the um, persona of a big-time cave diver. And especially in the 90s. Yes. Back in the I mean, 90s. You, you didn't get, to, you didn't get to, to Rob's level without being a tough, I don't give a damn badass right. in, in a lot of respects. I mean, that's what drove him, and that's why he was successful. I mean, I look back, I mean, a lot of my early mentors, which I would look at now going, wow, uh, a lot of these dives were dangerous as hell, like knowing <laughs> what I know now. But what drove them was just the grit and the hardiness is what kept them alive. But that's not something that you can teach to other people. No, no, that isn't. Um, that's something that 
has developed over a long period of time in their upbringing and the uh, experiences and, and education they've received through life. So it's not a, okay, here's a class on how to have grit. And I, I won't say anything else just to not offend anyone else, but that characteristic of, uh, you know, uh, that gorilla diver attitude. I'm just going to tough my way through it. Week one was on the MV Moondancer. At that time, Peter Hughes's new liveaboard venture in Egypt. Rob found time to conduct a semi-closed-circuit rebreather course and certified my wife, Farzi. It was to be the last certification he issued. The second week was set aside for the first international conference of the Technical Diving Agency, TDI, in Hurghada. I missed the first day, consisting of the opening session followed by a dive, as I had to take Farzi to the airport. When I returned to the Intercontinental, I was met by Brett Gilliam, president of TDI, and he wanted to talk to me urgently. It turned out that news had come through on the dive center's radio that Rob had failed to return from his dive, and Brett was clearly shocked. I, sadly, was not. It was the culmination of something I had been half expecting to happen for the past seven days. Whoa. Whoa, yeah, no kidding. So something happened in the past seven days that would indicate to to John that Rob's acting... A little dangerously these days. Yeah, like a, like a reckless, right. a, like a reckless endangerment, you know, kind of attitude going. We met the dive boat as it tied up at the jetty. All on board were suffering from a mixture of shock and disbelief. I talked to those who had been in the water with Rob, including Tim Bream, the teenage diver who had partnered him with previous week. I submitted a factual, carefully worded release through the press association. It was not the place for speculation. I later watched bemused as respected newspapers invented their own sensational explanations for the incident. Rob had not been using a quote-unquote secret rebreather, nor been trapped in a black hole, as reported by some. I believe he was trapped, though, not in any physical sense. He was trapped by his own state of mind. And this is something you talk to divers about as well. I can remember having these conversations. As they want to get into technical diving, the ramifications of being uh, in a bad mood or in a funk or depressed, if you will, anxious, those states of mind can have debilitating effects on the dive and your own personal health. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, you, you, you can't carry your daily baggage into the water. No. That's a day that you go, you know what, I am, I am not an asset to you as a, as a, a buddy. I, I shouldn't be partnered up with you. Like, I'm not an asset to myself. I, I need to take a day off and clear my head. Yeah. Like, Underwater is not the place to be with, with, with that pressure. Right. If you have something like that going on, usually I go in the water and the whole outside world disappears. But if it's so big that you're taking those issues and the, the accompanying baggage of those issues into the water, you're not only uh, putting yourself at higher risk, but the team as well, the other divers in the water with you. So don't do it. 
And when you start adding up, I've got this stuff that's in my head that I, I can't shake. Right. And then you add on, I don't have any of my own equipment. Well, I, I got I got to use you know stuff that that somebody's gonna throw me that I that I'm not really familiar with. Those are two stressors that are compounding together. Mm-hmm. That before you even even hit the water, you have to approach that dive if you're going to do it in a different mental readiness than just everything is perfectly normal. You 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 can't accept that as normal. Yeah, you. It's impossible to have the same level of trust in the equipment that yeah, that, right. that you would have in your own equipment per se. You know, whether you go and have it serviced somewhere or you service it yourself, whatever you have a certain degree of trust or certain level of trust in that equipment. And then when you go elsewhere to take on a bigger dive and be using a rental that you're not really sure about, that's uh, that's going to be up there working its way in your head. A year before, Rob had been present when some U.S. divers appeared to have undertaken an unnecessarily risky dive. This was later the subject of litigation when an American magazine reported it and the divers seemingly closed ranks. Rob was not part of the dive nor the apparent cover-up. However, in a strange way, I sensed that he felt diminished by being excluded. Some of the divers were likely to be arriving in Hergarda, for the TDI conference. On board the Moon Dancer, we had been promised an enjoyable series of dives. I was spoiled for choice when it came to buddies. My two favorites were on board, Farzi and Rob. However, when Rob suggested we do some deepies, we decided that my <laughs> wife. <laughs> we do some deepies, eh? On a spot of tea with me deepies. All right, Mike, let's do a little deepie. <laughs> well, if you say it, it the, there's, uh, there's other connotations to deepies. <laughs> <laughs> My wife, a new mother, should not take any unnecessary risks. So she and I dived together while Rob teamed up with Tim. Young, but a sensible and intelligent diver, Tim and Rob each went in armed with a twin set of air and a sling tank of Nitrox 50 for decompression. On one dive, I noticed them doing a stop at a far greater depth than us. Back on board, Moondancer, I took a casual look at Rob's computer. At first, I thought it read 12 meters. A chill ran through me when I realized I had misread. 120 meters. I tackled him about it later, in private but to no effect. 120 on air. Yep. Not 120 feet. 120 meters. Yeah. 120 <laughs> meters. Right where... Approaching 400 the, feet. Yeah, silly, I mean... Silly, silly people. Rob had always been a great champion of technical diving. He advocated rich nitrox mixes for decompression and was an enthusiastic exponent. <clears throat> he advocated rich nitrox mixes for decompression and was an enthusiastic exponent of trimix for use at depth. He pursued increased safety by reducing the amount of offensive gas in the breathing mix. Get it wrong and you're dead 
he would say. <laughs> Yet, <laughs> well, how much more wrong can you get than uh, that? PPO two near four hundred feet is. <laughs> 2.7 ish 2.8 whatever that's pretty wrong right and you know i know i mean a, a lot of people will push it a little bit i mean but i mean overall it's it's accepted by a large community that 30 meters you should be thinking of of bringing helium and and that's too deep for air and now we're going four times that yeah the narcosis and the o2 toxicity are off the chart but he says, you know, yet here, here he was throwing everything he believed into the wind and subjecting his body to a dive with a PPO2 of more than 2.7 bar when he had always advocated an absolute maximum of 1.6. I was confused and appalled. I had always enjoyed the way Rob not only shared his skills but was open-minded about others' ideas. But it hurt to find my mentor acting so far out of character. Surely, this had to be a temporary aberration. And John continues on, he says, As Rob repeated his deep dives throughout the latter part of the week, our exchanges in his cabin became more and more heated. And when he expressed the mind-boggling opinion that a PPO2 of three bar was quote-unquote safe, he did so in private. However, he was later heard discussing with other passengers the quote-unquote cozy effect of narcosis as it closes around you. Only our dive guide, Sarah, seemed oblivious to what was going on. She daily recommended a depth limit of 30 meters in her dive briefings. My feeling was that Rob (laughs) did was his own business. (laughs) So 30 meters, everybody. And uh, old Rob is going to 120. Right, right. 30 meters, and uh, it's like the typical dive master yeah. blinders that you know that so many tend to have. I mean, I mean, I, I mean, I can, but I can remember this, you know, as a, as a kid on on dives going down to Cozumel, and hey, it's 100 feet max depth. We don't go below 100 feet, you know. Dive master Pedro tells everybody. Right. You had Pedro. I had Carlos. And then you know, there's always you know, the, the one guy that wants to set the world record on his on his computer. A hundred and one feet. I mean, <laughs> not a hundred and one. Like, I mean, yeah. I remember like as a kid, like cruising along, and I looked down, like, what? Like there's a there's this tiny speck of a body way the hell down there. And the the dive master, you know, when when they get back on the boat, it's it's not. You're endangering everybody. You're endangering yourself. You're not allowed to dive again. It's, I did not see anything. I know, I know nothing. Because he, uh, he, he wants the customer to be happy. Right. He wants the customer to tip him at the end of the week. So I, I'm just going to casually pretend I don't know anything other than I told everybody 100 feet, 30 meters. Everybody's diving to 100 feet, 30 meters. Except for Rob. <laughs> He says, my feeling was that Rob, what Rob did was his own business, but he should not have encouraged a young person who admired and trusted him to accompany him on these dives. And I pointed that out to him, that if anything happened to Tim, Rob's career would be in ruins. And his actions, whether he knows it or not, are being watched and admired or when you're well-known and respected in the community and you're pulling stunts like 
going to 120 meters on air in front of young impressionable divers that were with you. What are you saying there? Right. Well, I mean, that's the thing is, you know, if you're an instructor and or even if you're like a big big name in the industry community big name in in the yeah like you have a responsibility to a certain degree you do i mean i mean it, yes. when you especially today yeah. like with all the influencers out there in the in the community all over every bit of social media it's one thing to just look tough and macho and brave and badass but you got to realize that there's people watching that and following that 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 admire it and are going to copy it like you've you you have to be responsible in in that respect. Yeah, I, I I think in a perfect world you're right, but I mean there's something to be said about they don't own you or anything, so you can do what you want. But there is a level of responsibility. I agree, and especially back here in in, in that at that time, when you see this kind of behavior was going on, really it is up for criticism, don't you think? And I think this is right where John and his buddy is going yeah. right now. He's, he says, by the end of the week, I was intrigued, not so much by whether there would be a fatality that seemed on the cards as by what, what Rob was trying to prove. He says, knowledge is power, and when you share that knowledge, you must share the power. Once Rob had taught people what he knew, they would go off and become experts in their own right. Some seemed to regard their former teacher as a threat. He had fallen out with several old associates, probably for that reason. It's one thing to get famous, another to stay there. Continuing renown was one thing Rob really seemed to want. I can only conclude that, like an old gunslinger, he felt threatened by younger and newer people on the scene, as well as by the riskier and, in some cases, notorious exploits of certain of his peers. The TDI conference put him in the company of such divers. It seems he needed to prove something, either to them or to himself. Ego's a bitch, man. It's a tough one, man. It's a tough one. And, and, and you, especially in these days where, where, yeah, like everything that everybody thought everybody knew is changing so fast well you'd think they would stop being so sure of themselves people would stop being so sure of themselves because every time we turn around something's changed you know oh no that's not true anymore you you can't even spout a fact that you've known for decades in fear of nope that's that's changed the sky is no longer blue it's fucking plaid now and it's always been plaid, you know. That kind of thing is 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 it's crazy. But yeah, change is tough, and when you've and especially when you've been one of the people waving the flag for right. so long, it's hard to put that flag down. Yeah, it, it, you've uh, enjoyed a a life of being well known in the community, and uh, and you like that. But now these young people are coming up in the ranks, and. Sons bitches. of bitches, yeah. little ungrateful little. Well, they kind of are to a certain degree. They don't acknowledge like their roots, their their shoulders, they're standing on. Don't forget your roots. That's why sometimes it's so satisfying to watch a big mouth, cocky young person who is, you know, by their own right, they could be very, very good at what they do, but they're cocky and arrogant and all the other things that go with being good at something. 
and then an old person, an old OG comes along and uh, schools the bitch. Just schools them. <laughs> yes, as I approach my older years. You're an OG, I, I, I dude. Find... <laughs> You're actually less than a decade from my age. I, I, I relish in those moments, too. But at the same time, like sometimes the, the, the new kid's got a point. Well, they do, and I'm not trying to, to yeah, dismiss no. it. It's more of that ego thing. That er- It's the arrogant, cocky ones I'm more, more speaking of. And it's hard not to become a victim of your ego, too. That's a constant discipline, and that's easy when people pour accolades your way for certain feats you've accomplished. And then uh, young people come along and do those same feats, and you're like, you fuckers. <laughs> well, I, well, Brando, I think if we've learned anything in 25 years of the George Irvine, Rob Palmer story, it's it's just that, yeah. right? At, at, in the moment, it is on both sides, ego, arrogance, who's going to be number one, who's going to be the most renowned. It's a fight, and they're, they're both sides, all the sides, there's more than just these two sides, really, in this in this big battle at the time in the late 90s it was an and octagon I think it's only... it was like they were in the octagon <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they were in the uh scuba octagon the most definitely it was it was a cage cage fight royal rumble though it wasn't just two fighters you know let's get but it's I mean, th- this story you know is as fueled as it was, and, and like, and right after this, you know, Brett Gilliam is going to write the the fear and loathing on the internet article. In many ways, like doing exactly what George was doing, coming out and attacking him. Right? Uh, I mean, they they put out a really great piece about you know remembering Rod yeah. Palmer and all the you know, the stories from all kinds of people just talking about how great of a guy he was. You know. Bill Hamilton wrote something. Uh, Colin Buxton wrote something. Brad Cart wrote something. Peter Hess wrote something. Dan Malone wrote something. Uh, I mean, there's all kinds of these in this article about just talking about how great Rob was. And then, and then the next article is like just a- attacking George for how big of a loudmouth asshole he's been but it was all emotion really on both sides at this time and that's what i'm saying is it's gonna take what we're doing now 25 years later to be able to okay we've all taken a breath do you think maybe they all got together and and said hey in recent light of well rob's death obviously but just prior to that was george's rant against rob how about we all each write something nice about Rob to counter? Because the, really, that whole group you just said right there were against GI3. Oh, yeah, because the, oh. they had nothing good to say about him. So I think they may have said, hey, let's each individually, let's put out a, a nice little Rob was a good guy article or he's a great diver article. Let's make George look like a schmuck here. Well, again, well, that's kind of what I mean is – Yes, that's exactly what those two articles are going to do, is, is to, to make him look like the enemy. Two, yeah, Most, many articles, many articles. Oh, yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and this yeah. is what started, you know, the, the, the hatred of it all, right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, we get into the, 
the two thousands hit and, you know, DIR becomes like a real thing, a, a growing thing in the community. Right. And there is the battle, but 25 years later, you don't see, I mean, you got to go out of your way to find a, a technical instructor who's teaching back mounted independent twins in 2023, right? You got to go out of your way to find an instructor that says go to 300 plus feet on air. Well, right. be negligence. That would be gross negligence, willful gross negligence to tell a student. Right. You got to go out of your way, 2023, to find an instructor to tell you to, to dive 100 pounds negatively buoyant overweighted <laughs> and just keep adding wings uh, to, to your system. I mean, sure, it might be out there, but yeah, like 20, 25 years later. Things have changed, and as the emotion uh, the emotion has died down, we're finally to a point where we can have a reasonable conversation about this without it be- becoming personal anymore, like it was at the time. Yeah, there was a lot of, um, again, a lot of egos, a lot of emotional rantings. When Brett Gilliam told me that it was Rob who had been lost, I actually felt a sense of relief. My fear that he would be implicated in the death of a teenager had been growing with me every dive. And at the same time, it confirmed to me that what Rob had always taught was correct. Whoever you are, you must obey the natural laws. And Rob chose to test what he had been teaching about oxygen toxicity. He repeatedly subjected his body to high levels of oxygen. Rob was killed by physics, as he always told me. You get away with it until you don't. <laughs> physics, goddamn murderer physics. The murderer is physics. Ah. <laughs> physics. You see uh, Isaac Newton running away. Ah. <laughs> Wait a minute. Physics with the PPO2 in the ocean. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we could make a, a diver clue game. Wouldn't that be good? It could be, yeah, Mr. Uh, Mr. Physics did it with, uh, no, physics would be the murder weapon, do you think? So who would, no. Rob Palmer, in this case, Rob Palmer did it with physics No, no, it would be ocean. physics did it with the O2 toxicity. Sicity, oh, okay, okay, one kid, I get it. In the, yeah, in, in the, the ocean, ocean, ocean where we could have. I think it's a good idea. I think it, it might actually, we might sell 12, 12 games. Tiffany, <laughs> Tiffany, call Milton Bradley right now. How to lose a million dollars. Come up with the scuba clue game. John says, when I told Brett about the preceding week, he could hardly believe it. But Rob was never a deep air diver, was all Brett could say. Some claimed afterward that Rob Palmer committed suicide. But in the evenings, he had talked about the possibility of starting a family with his wife, Steffi. We'd agreed that children are one's only real legacy, hardly the sentiments of a depressed person. He had just bought some land in the Bahamas and was planning to build a house there. Ill health, marital problems, even his position with TDI have been cited as reasons, but None of these is true. Some say he had faulty equipment. Highly unlikely. 
It was an ill-founded competitive streak and possibly a midlife crisis that was his Achilles heel. So, I, I, yeah, I mean, it's I mean, it's hard to tell, right? I mean, it could be. Yeah, what was going on in his mind. You can't pretend to know the mind of any human being, so we can only sit here and speculate, but given everything he just said, it didn't appear as if he was suffering from some kind of uh, anxiety, depression kind of diagnosis, right? No, I mean, I, mean I, I think what John was saying earlier about, you know, realizing I'm not the 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 big gun anymore. I got I got to look like the tough guy. Uh, it makes sense to me. And and then I understand like uh Brett, you know, you know I think it was kind of a combination, right? I mean, uh, of of the like not being the the cool kid anymore. I mean, recently you know, Brett Gilliam had hit that world record right in in the mid 90s for deep air like diving 470 feet on on air so there's a little bit of that going but then you couple that with an equipment failure and being overweighted and so i don't think there is one answer i don't think we'll ever know like the one answer i agree john says repeated dives in excess of 100 meters on air killed rob palmer but we can never be sure what was going on in his mind and on that final day he entered the water with tim two other young men jean michel and mila and a young woman jane rob was twice the age of some of them they saw him as a role are you sure they didn't see him as the old guy who's holding us back (laughs) (laughs) hey now i did after turning 48 myself recently, that really that really gets me right in the feels there, Brandon. You're really identifying with old Rob. I, I am, I am. He says, the scene was a typical deep water reef in the Gufton Islands. It was Jane who, during the descent, decided to stop at 70 meters. Tim and Jean-Michel say they stopped at 107 meters, while Mila appears to have gone off on a dive of his own. Rob was last seen below the others, apparently waving them to continue on down. So he's on a dive. They're going to 100 meters plus on air, and he's a a proponent of mixed gas, and he's kind of a a role model, and he's still doing this instead of... Right, right. I know it, man. It's crazy stuff. Let's rethink. I, I, I guess this is a lot of when you look at the huge fight that we were talking about the last couple of episodes. I don't, you don't know what to believe, you know, because in some ways this sounds like a suicide mission. You know what I mean? It's, it's absolutely absurd. And then the people, you know, that, that when you look at people like writing the, the remembering him afterwards, they ignore a lot of this and just talk about, oh, he was a great guy. He was the best diver in the world. So then why is it, why did he do this? Yeah, this is not the actions of the best diver in the world. <laughs> okay, this is not the actions of somebody. I mean, if you owned an agency, would you want, would you want this to be your, your mascot kind of thing? 
This is your and guy, and this, he's you know, doing this. Th- this isn't really written by an opponent either. I mean, this is written by his buddy and longtime no, you know, it's his dive friend. partner is is yeah. sitting there saying, "Man, these." Like, what was going through Rob's mind? You know, he was a close friend of Rob's. And, you know, he wrote this piece, you know, weeks, weeks afterwards. This is like you write, <laughs> writing this for me. You could say, yeah, he was he was kind of losing his mind. The, the last five to ten years of his life, he really went over the if edge. You, if, you, <laughs> if you listen slowly over the course of 300 episodes, you can get the sense of a man slowly <laughs> losing the last bits of reality that he was holding on to. <laughs> uh-huh. But John says, Tim said to me afterwards when the boat docked, he's lost. He's not coming back. He just kept swimming on down. I mean, what? I mean, what a feeling to to come back, like to be on that boat and have to have to deal with that, and have to have been there and witnessed that. You know, well, it's a, it's a learning experience, and uh, it's a powerful learning experience. It's something that you would hope each one of those divers that were with them took something very valuable away from the experience, which is, I ain't going to do that no more. I don't think they're going to talk like that. They're all probably British. Let's have a a sport sport and not do that anymore. (laughs) He says, as I collected Rob's few possessions for the Egyptian police from our shared hotel room, it distressed me that he had lost his life in what seemed to have been a week of terrifying folly. It is a sad reflection on human nature that within days of Rob's death, Mila went diving with me and chose to ignore our pre-dive chosen depth limit. I parted company with him at 65 meters, and he surfaced a good time after me with 120 meters logged on his computer. I just said, well, I'm hoping these people that accompanied him on on his last dive, it was such a powerful experience that they learned something that's really set in depth to them, you know, deep into their their makeup. But what I just gathered from this... (laughs) The, the rest of the story here is they learned nothing, really. Or they learned, like, well, I can beat Rob. He was just an old guy. I'm going to go down there. Well, is that not what the the, the, the whole ego thing is and the, the, the role model behavior that you have to realize what you're imparting to the people around you? And, not, and, and people are going to take it different ways. You know, John here says diving should not be a competitive sport. Let's do what Rob said not what he did during that last crazy week of his life. I had the unbelievable task of traveling to the Bahamas to tell his widow, Steffi, what I believe really happened. She now wants this story told. Whatever we think, we should not let this short period of lost reason dilute the legacy that Rob Palmer has left us regarding diving technique and safety. After all, it was he who coined the phrase, attitude keeps you alive. Or kills you, depending or on ki- the attitude. <laughs> Very true, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, and I think what John's saying here is in, you know, in regard to a lot of what both sides were saying, like, at the time of everybody that was coming out pro Rob Palmer, he was the best. You know, George coming out saying, no, he was an idiot. He deserved it. You know, that fight isn't telling the real story. And I think what I love about this one is, you know, he's trying to tell a real story that later on his even Rob's wife was saying 
this story needs to be told is Rob was a great guy. He was loved all over the world. He was one of the best. But he made some stupid mistakes that even he would sit there in a classroom and tell people were stupid mistakes. Exactly. I don't know how much more you can say. This story really actually admonishes George more than it admonishes Rob. If you fault George by his delivery of the message, okay, maybe he could be a little more diplomatic in his delivery, but his message... (laughs) There's There's no maybe, but... You don't have kids. If you have kids and they're teenagers, they know everything, okay? You can't talk to them. You have to be an ass. You have to... Be like, I get what you're saying. Yep. You fucking schmucks got to get your head out of your ass, okay? I've tried all the nice stuff. Occasionally, you have to say it brutally, honestly. I don't care about your feelings because your feelings aren't going to kill you. Your stupid actions are going to kill you. You being sad because I called you a schmuck and to get your head out of your ass isn't going to kill you. Actually, it might make you wake up eventually. If you can get past your own ego of knowing everything at 14 and 15 years old. Okay, and this is the same thing. The record shows they're dying on a weekly basis, and yet they pat themselves on the back for their record. You're going, well, wait a minute. That's not a great record. That's nothing to be proud of, especially when you've got a guy doing miles back into a cave at 300 feet, and they're doing it constantly with groups of people. And they're doing it with pretty much a flawless safety record. And they come out and say, well, this is how we do it. And then people argue with them. And then you have deaths like this happen. And you get angry going, this death was completely avoidable. Completely. Right. So I can identify with both sides. I get you don't want to speak ill of the dead. And if I ever go doing something like this, you have, not only you're not bad-mouthing, you are doing me a favor saying he was a jackass, he, he fucked up. Step back for a minute, and instead of looking at the delivery, look at the message. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. Well, there you go, people. Um, That's a couple of episodes about the unmentionable (laughs) in the school world, George Irvine, and the early days of how uh, we got to where we are with a lot of what is known as technical diving and protocol and equipment you know it came from a very emotional time in the scuba world where tempers were flaring egos were running 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 rampant and the internet made it all easy (laughs) and possible to do from the comfort of your own home and you could just grab your popcorn and just just watch the the words appear. <laughs> the words that would come out were awesome. It well, was awesome. Well, this has been fun. I, I don't know about you, but yeah. these have been a fun couple of episodes. Today's, I apologize, people, was a little um, little a bit of a downer, a little bit of a sad one. Next week is going to be, we're changing gears. We're, we're going to do something fun <laughs> next week. In particular, because, Brando... We got a public service announcement for the people. Manscaped now has beard products. And Brando is going even further. I know you love your beard. Can you beard. get further? Yes. With the new, brand new Weed Whacker 2.0. 
Go ahead, everybody. Tell the world the leaders in Below the Waist Grooming are traveling north of your South Pole with their revolutionary <laughs> grooming products. The new Weed Whacker 2.0 with their new beard line confirms that they have all the best tools for your hygiene toolbox. It's time to upgrade your game by going to manscaped.com and using the code TGDP for 20% off and free shipping. Brando, you've been using the Beard Hedger Pro Kit. It's the ultimate package that makes it easier than ever to craft that signature look that you're sporting right now. I am working on my signature look constantly, constantly. I don't want one look to be my signature look, so I constantly want to vary it. And yeah, the uh, beard products that we receive from uh, Manscaped actually make me look forward to cleaning up my face. And it doesn't matter how well-shaved you are, well-groomed your, your beard is, how nice of a haircut you have, how how much pomade you have in there, style in that uh, pompadour of of yours out there if you've got those weird wrangly dangly nose hairs popping out all over the place ear hairs you know sticking out of your ears it it doesn't matter what you do it's like putting lipstick on a pig you know it's not gonna look good and that new the brand new weed whacker 2.0 improves that with new blades and skin safe technology with a no tugging guarantee it's never been so painless to mind your manholes people well, and you, who just turned 48, you are probably getting a ton of use out of that nose hair and oh, ear I know it. hair it's like, uh, <laughs> grooming uh, for the For the first 45 years of my life, I never had to trim a <laughs> nose hair or an ear hair. Now, they're, they're, they're popping up every day. I wonder if it's ever going to be a fashion to grow them out and put some like nose hair balm on them or ear ear hair balm. Don't or give a, don't give manscape away. That's next year. That's uh, the next year release. The nose hair pomade. All right, everybody, uh, go get twenty percent off of free shipping with the code TGDP at manscape.com. That's twenty percent off, Brando, with the code TGDP at manscape.com. Always use the right tools for the job, people, with Manscaped and. Don't forget your coffee over at the Abyss Coffee Co. Tell Angie, guys from TGDP sent you. Use that code TGDP10. Brando, should we assign some logbooks on this whole big old George Irvine? uh... Are we going to close out old George? And we never really covered any of his really colorful stuff. That really was the essence of being part of the tech diving community back in the day. Listen, you bovine farm animal. (laughs) I can do three shots of heroin and still make it to the stereo before passing out. I can smoke six bowls of dope and still make it to the kitchen for the cookies. I'm a real tough guy like Palmer and that whole idiot gang. May 14th, 1997. Uh, the Georgisms were were crazy, no doubt about it. So I'm gonna leave you with one. Let me. Let, you got a you got a, a completely empty page in your logbook. This is a big one. <laughs> this is a good one. All right. <laughs> Bob, have I mean Brando, having reviewed several deco programs, <laughs> I seem to remember that Chris Parrott has several options for huge fat slobs. You simply enter the degree <laughs> of slobbery. 
when the program prompts you, such as slob, fat slob, huge fat slob, or typical Central Florida cave diver. <laughs> this option covers you for egregious fat slobbery, alcoholism, cigarette and pot smoking, and extreme <laughs> levels of stupidity. Give Chris a jingle and he'll fix you right up. If you lied about your weight and you're really a 400 pounder, give Jock Cree a call. <laughs> Have a nice time. And for the rest of you dumb rednecks, if you have not gotten the message, let me give it to you straight. You all need to get out of the sport. Get out of our hair. Yeah, so there you go. There's a couple of uh, old Georgisms to uh, to send you on your way. A very decisive uh, figure or a very divisive figure in the community. Uh, but, hey, like we said uh, uh, last week, we're not about canceling our culture. We're about uh, you know remembering the history and realize, you know, love it or hate it, it it's how we got to 2023. And it seems we're on the improving end of that struggle. We haven't gone backwards. At least it appears that way, right? We're still moving forward. I, I, and hopefully we always will. And I think that has a lot to do with what old George was trying to do, whether you love him, hate him, or in between. We will talk to you guys next week. We'll uh, we'll be back next week with more jocularity and dive talking.